Welcome to the Pardes Parsha podcast. My name is Tzvi Hirschfield, and I have the distinct privilege and pleasure of discussing the profound analysis and deep insights into the Parsha from my wonderful colleagues at the Pardes Institute. So glad you could join us. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another exciting podcast. Even more exciting is who is joining me today. I am being joined by the president of the Pardes Institute and my friend and my colleague and my teacher, Rabbi Leon Morris. Welcome, Leon. So happy you could be here. Thank you, Tzvi. It's an honor to be sitting with you and a lot of fun to be sitting with you. Very few people have said that to me at the start of the podcast. <laughs> I so don't I'm believe that. that that's, uh, I'm hoping that's true. So I want to remind all of our listeners that uh, we are recording this. Uh, it's the beginning of December and unfortunately, Unfortunately, we are still at war. The hostages are still uh, in Aza. And so, God willing, by the time you listen to this podcast, things will be much better. There will be peace. The hostages will be home, and we pray and hope for that. But since we're recording it now, it's not going to be surprising if the Torah that we're going to share and talk about is going to reflect what's happening around us right now. And so that's just something to be aware of as we listen. And maybe this is a form of a tefillah, a prayer that things will really be better by the time this podcast is aired. So we are on Parshat Va'era, and maybe fittingly, we are at the beginning of the redemption story of the Jewish people leaving Egypt. And we're also encountering that it is not a smooth sail. No, it's not. Leon, you've noted that uh, this Parsha, which is going to deal the beginning of our redemption and Moses as a messenger of God to the Jewish people and as the vessel of redemption, that it's not always such smooth sailing in terms of what's going to happen. And that's an element that you want to focus on in this Parsha. I was really drawn to the juxtaposition of four or five powerful promises that God makes, five ways of expressing that God will save us from Egypt, and God says to Moses, tell the people this, and then they can't hear. And that juxtaposition, it's not the response that one would expect. And I was kind of tuned into this by Yeshayahu Leibovitz, who really underscored what a terrible juxtaposition this is. How could the people respond this way? So walk us through a little bit about the languages that Moshe brings and the language in terms of how the people respond. So the expressions that Moses uses that many of our listeners will remember from the Pesach Seder is Vihotzeti, I will bring you out, Vihitzalti, and I will save you, Vigaalti, I will redeem you, Vilakachti, and I will take you, Viheveti etchem el haaretz, and I will bring you into the land. And so God is giving Moshe this amazing, inspiring, promising script of redemption, going into some detail about what redemption means. It's all these specific things. And then we read in Exodus chapter 6, verse 9, Vayadaber Moshe came, el b'nei Yisrael, v'lo sham'u el Moshe mikotzer ruach u'me'avodah kasha that Moses told this, meaning all these powerful promises to the people of Israel, and they couldn't listen, they couldn't hear him, mikotzeruach, often translated as they had a crushed spirit. And the great labor, right? 
Yes, yes, so, and because of their their body. So what you're describing here is Moshe comes as a prophet with a vision from God about the wonderful thing that's about to happen to the people. And it doesn't say the people reject Moshe as a prophet. They say, you know, I don't think God's powerful enough to do all that. It literally says they can't hear him in the sense of that there is something going on that they are unable to take this in in spite of what Moshe is saying to them. Hmm. I think we might read this a bit too quickly. We might move on from verse 6 and not stop to realize, and this is what I took from Yeshayahu Leibovitz, that this isn't the response of the people that Moses was hoping for, that God was hoping for, that the Torah was hoping for. And so I'm interested in the question of why couldn't they hear? What is Kotzer Ruach? Let's dig down a little bit deeper. And I found this quote by the Kotzker Rebbe, late 18th, early 19th century Hasidic leader, Menachem Mendel of Kotz, who says the first step toward liberation will be freeing themselves from their passivity and their tolerance of the intolerable. And I love this idea that the people were tolerating, they'd gotten used to what really is intolerable, and they were stuck in that place. You know, there's almost a sense when you say that, this idea of tolerating the intolerable, it almost associates for me this sense of a lack of imagination that could ever be any different than what it is. In mm -hmm. other words, you don't even realize it's the intolerable because you are so cut off from a sense of what could possibly be better. It's like this message that Moshe is bringing to them is incomprehensible because things are not that way. So that idea that they lacked vision or imagination is brought in a beautiful 20th century commentary, Chiba Yatera, Rav Yehuda Henkin, in the 1990s. And he explains Kotzer Ruach as a lack of vision, Chaser Chazon, that they were Chasre Chazon. And he brings in this beautiful verse from Mishle, from Proverbs, Be'en Chazon Yipara Ha'am that where there is no vision, a people perishes. And it's very powerful, right? And you have to be able to imagine that things can be different. You have to be able to have a vision. You have to be able to dream. And we're being told here, or at least one interpretation of what it meant for the people to be kotzeruach was that they didn't have vision. They didn't have imagination. So let's go back. I realize I took you away from the cut I want to come back. So what do you think causes us to tolerate the intolerable? What do you think sets in as a result? I think we're wired for static nature. We just kind of get used to whatever we're experiencing and we just lean into that or fall into that. It almost suggests that our adaptability can be dangerous, right? Our ability to quote unquote adapt to the conditions that we're in can be dangerous. It could lead us to the point where we don't try. We don't make an effort to change. We just adapt. Mm, I love that. The dark side of adaptability. So clearly then the focus you're helping us to understand is that it's not enough for God and Moshe to come with a vision of Geula, of redemption. Something has to happen within the people to make that vision realizable or make it happen. Something has to switch in the listener hmm. in order to uh, make something happen. 
Well, and I think that's really the question that these different commentators are exploring when they're asking, what's the definition of kotzer ruach? They're really saying, what needs to be overcome by the people? What's the particular impediment that is allowing them to be more active participants in their liberation? So we've had, okay, vision, lack of imagination. I think the most straightforward one, and this is brought by Chizkuni, a 13th century French commentator, is fear that they've already had this experience that when you or when someone on your behalf rises up, it just makes things worse for you. The B'nai Yisrael got even more work. Oh, when Moshe in the first time came to Paro, and Paro's like, oh yeah, you think you're suffering now? Go out and collect the straw. Exactly. So they're basically saying, you're going to come back to us again with your big ideas? And they're afraid. And the Kotzer Ruach is, shush, just keep quiet. You're going to make trouble for us. You know, it's like that crazy joke. The two Jews who are, you know, in front of the firing squad and one says to the other, hey, you know, Shlomi, do you think I should ask for a blindfold? And the other one says, no, keep quiet. You don't want to make any trouble. <laughs> it does raise that image, though, of, and I guess I should be careful with this expression, the classic image of the Jew in exile who is just walking around scared right, who is just so terrified of these other powers that stand above them. And there's an element here, I'm saying that the Jewish people in Egypt were a powerless people, and that lack of power, that lack of agency made them terribly fearful. They didn't trust that there was anyone around to protect them, that they could protect themselves. And maybe any change, your first thought is, it could be worse. You're going to make things worse for us. It's going to get worse you know, that sense of living with that terror or fear, it just sounds crippling. On a spiritual level, we can ask what was going on. What is that Kotzer Ruach? So Sforno, a 16th century Italian commentator, says it's trust. That's what Kotzer Ruach was a lack of trust, that they couldn't trust in God's salvation. And in a similar kind of way, the Midrash, Midrash Agadah, says that it's faith, that they were Chosrei Emunah, so those are very closely related, a lack of trust that the arc of history is long and it bends toward justice, to paraphrase or quote Martin Luther King, that God would redeem us, the idea of, of faith, maybe that's even broader here than trust. I love bringing all these perspectives of Kotzer Ruach together because we could imagine it having been some combination of these. There's the psychological paralysis caused by fear. There's the spiritual element of, you know, I've, I've been worked so hard and I'm so far from my homeland and life is so bad for generations. I just have lost my faith and I've lost trust. And I certainly have no imagination to envision a different life when this has been the work that my parents and their parents and their parents have done. So, Kotzer Ruach, there's a lot in there. You know, Rashi in Bamidbar, where this phrase comes up also, and I think it's related to what you're saying, talks about Kotzer Ruach as a narrowing of the heart. The heart can't make a space for the difficulties that have arisen. And my understanding of that is that if the heart represents some type of framework that includes positive good feelings, right? It has the entire range. And when we are healthy, I think, 
we can absorb difficulties and allow them to live alongside other positive feelings. It's like when someone, God forbid, loses a relative and they're in mourning, the sadness of the mourning can often live next to the gratitude of having known the person, of the relationship, of what you have gained. They kind of find a way to live side by side. Yet sometimes we are in such a place of tsar, and I like the play on the words tsar and tsar, right? Pain and narrowness, that we can't even make space for anything positive. There is, there's no place to put it. Our hearts are so filled up with difficulty and with pain, we don't even make space for the aspiration or possibility of the positives that are out there. Mm, I love that. And in what you're describing, I think, in what you're sharing is the effects that the Jewish people's experience in Egypt, it was more than just suffering, that the suffering had created a psychological and spiritual shutting down of the Jewish people in so many ways that even when the Geulah is starting to happen, they can't hear it. Hmm. I think I was drawn to this for obvious reasons right now. The possibility of narrowing our hearts, the possibility of being so distraught and filled with such despair is there. And I'm interested in how we cultivate a sense of all of these things that were lacking, these qualities that were lacking in the children of Israel, uh, taking all these commentaries of what Kotzer Ruach meant. How do we, in a difficult time, cultivate a sense of courage and faith and trust and vision? You know, I think, you know, I'm sad to admit, I, you know, you're describing my, at least most of the time, my current state of feeling. Uh, here we are, 60 days after the most horrific pogrom against the Jewish people since the times of the Holocaust. And I confess it has made me feel a lot of kotzer ruach, to use your phrasing, a sense of, I don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. And it's not just what's happening here in Israel. You know, I read the stories of, of things that are happening in America to my two alma maters, right? And the type of discourse that's happening of how Jews feel out in public, being publicly Jewish. And these are experiences I can't relate to. I didn't grow up in an America like that. And yet Jews in major cities feel afraid for their safety, for their well-being. They feel abandoned by allies with whom they thought they shared values and connection. And I'm feeling a lot of Kotzer Ruach. So I guess I'm stuck where the Jewish people were back then. So what is the wisdom, do you think, of how we emerge or how I emerge? Advise me, Leon. I'm coming to you now for I'm pastoral counseling. You. I'm advising you. I'm advising myself. How do we get out of this stuckness of despair? Or even make space for something other than the despair. Like, let's say some despair is going to be there. How do we even just make space for other feelings of gratitude, of faith. So I think one way is by turning to each other. And I, I want to bring in a, a beautiful Gemara, a beautiful excerpt from the Babylonian Talmud, Masechet Brachot, in which we're told about Rabbi uh, Chia Bar Abba, who fell ill, and Rabbi Yochanan entered uh, his room to visit him. And he said to him, is your suffering dear to you? And the response was, nope, neither the suffering nor the reward that I'll get as a result of the suffering. And Rabbi Yochanan said to him, give me your hand. And Rabbi Chiyabar Abba gave him his hand. And Rabbi Yochanan helped him stand up and he restored his health. And then we're told immediately a similar story. Rabbi Yochanan fell ill. 
And Rabbi Hanina came to visit him and said to him, is your suffering dear to you? And he said, no, not the suffering and not the reward. And Rabbi Hanina said, well, give me your hand. And he gave him his hand and Rabbi Hanina stood him up. And then the best part of this sugya, this Agadah that's in the Talmud, is the Talmud asks, well, wait a second, because of the first story, why did Rabbi Yochanan wait for Rabbi Hanina to restore him to health? He's the healer. He could heal himself. He healed Rabbi Chia Bar Abba. So why doesn't he heal himself? And the response of the Gemara is, Ein chavush matir atzmo mi asurim, that a prisoner cannot save himself from prison. We need the other person. We need a hand. We need help. We need to be able to say, I want to get up. I really want to be able to stand up, but I can't. I can't do it alone. And we need somebody to be offering us a hand. And this is a time here in Israel of intoxicating unity and chesed, loving kindness and volunteerism. And I find myself breaking out of the stuckness of Kotzer Ruach by witnessing every day the way in which people are extending a hand to lift someone else up. And I'm lifted up by that. And I think there are examples of that everywhere in the Jewish world right now. And I think we see the Jewish community of North America lifting us up. Uh, I was very inspired by the rally in Washington that was a way of extending a hand and lifting us up. So that's one way, I think, of breaking through of the Kotzer Ruach, is the other, is I can lift you up, Tzvi, and you can lift me up. Well, I think what's interesting there in my own experience, and I'm finding this as an ongoing challenge, that I am in a place of real down, but my family, you know, I have a daughter with a 15-month-old who's also 32 weeks pregnant. Hey, maybe by the time you listen to this part, well, no, it won't be that soon. I have a a son and daughter-in-law who is due like now. And I have a daughter who is doing her psychometry. I have people in my life who need support and more than support, they need to be happy for them. And my daughter's husband is in Aza and she's terrified. I can't indulge my Kotzer Ruach. In other words, this is like a twist. I have to act like a person who has got energy and positive thinking around these other people who need me to be that way. It's a really nice twist in the metaphor. I can't pull myself out. Mm. But in a way, I can manufacture an energy that can help other people be pulled out. So it's not like I have to wait until I'm really feeling it to help somebody else. But I can actually be a positive presence for other people even when I can't locate it inside myself for myself. You're fine like you're in that mm, situation? Mm, yeah, yeah. With a room full of students at Pardes and faculty who are walking around with their head down and you have to come in and you have to radiate, which you do, a smile, positivity, a belief in the work that we're doing. Does that speak to you that you have to put yourself in there? It does. It does. And I'm moved by this idea of this 16-month-old grandchild and an expectant grandchild there. They're pulling you up. They're the hand that's lifting you up. One of the hands. Absolutely. I think the other piece of how we get out of our stuckness, of how we break out of being Kotzeruach, is finding ways to cultivate a sense of hope. And a lot of people have written over the last few months about the difference between hope and optimism. And I think hope is something that can be pulled out from us. It's a trait that we can cultivate. 
And I think we're obligated to cultivate it. You know, there's this beautiful passage in the Talmud, Masechet Shabbat, where Rava tells us when we die, what questions will we be asked? And one of the questions is, Sipita Yeshua, did you hope for redemption, salvation? Did you live a hopeful life? And I remember one of my beloved teachers, the theologian Rabbi Eugene Barowitz, he, in some of his writing, talked about the obligation of setting aside time each day to, to hope, to hope for salvation, to fulfill this. He was one of the principal writers, I think the principal writer, behind a reform platform of theology in 1976 that was called the Centenary Perspective. And I just want to quote from it, if I can. Yeah, please. I think it's really beautiful. It says, previous generations of Jews had unbounded confidence in humanity's potential for good. We, writing in 1976, still in the shadow of the Shoah, we have lived through terrible tragedy and been compelled to reappropriate our tradition's realism about the human capacity for evil. Yet, our people has always refused to despair. He goes on to say the state of Israel, established and maintained by the Jewish people's will to live, demonstrates what a united people can accomplish in history. The existence of the Jew is an argument against despair. And I love that, that hope is about widening our perspective. It's about the ability to see more than the specific moment that we're living in. It's about both looking back and looking forward. It's understanding that we're part of a long narrative, and it's seeing ourselves as the emissaries of hope in the world. It's a very powerful passage, and it evokes two things in me, and I want to share them with you to hear what you think. Number one, I've had a chavruta in Rav Cook on Friday mornings, just for a half hour, with a wonderful, wonderful chavruta, knows much, much more than me, is incredibly helpful, and Rav Cook is constantly optimistic to the point where evil is sort of really dismissed in a way. And in the last couple months, Rav Cook's not landing with me. As I realized Rav Cook wrote everything he wrote. He died in 1936. The Holocaust was not part of his experience, but it wasn't landing with me and it was bothering me because I would like to be in that place of this sense of the goodness all around me unfolding, but I wasn't there. And I think what you just shared helps me to understand that hopefulness is not just a spontaneous feeling that's either there or not there, mm. but it has to be cultivated. You have to like choose to be hopeful. And sometimes the choice to be hopeful is surrounded by a lot of support and evidence because wonderful things are happening. And sometimes the choice to be hopeful is happening in the face of really dark, difficult things. And the idea of hopefulness being a choice, it's strange because normally you don't think of feelings or states of mind as choices. But what you're challenging me with here, I think, is this idea that hopefulness indeed is a choice that we have to and make. And it doesn't require us to deny the human capacity for evil. It can be our response to the human capacity for evil. So what do you do in your own life? to help you maintain hopefulness, even in the face of such difficulties? How's that for a simple question to drop on you on a random uh, Wednesday morning in well, Jerusalem? Well, I think I'm wired for hopefulness, so that helps. 
Hey, you are a very positive, upbeat person. It's so annoying. Really annoying. I can't stand that about you. Can't you walk around being angry and bitter <laughs> a lot more often? I think that uh, it's a very profound question that you're asking. I think like you, you know, watching my children gives me a lot of hope. Watching how they've developed in light of or despite all of our concerns over the years about different things and then just seeing how those concerns were more coming from a place of personal anxiety, you know, the way that grandparents reassure you and say, you know, they'll be fine, they'll be fine. That trajectory, I think, gives me hope. Living here gives me hope. I mean, even in a difficult period like this, you know, I tell my kids all the time and they, they can't hear it because they don't have my perspective. I tell them all the time when we're somewhere, like I'm driving them to school and we're passing an unobstructed, beautiful view of the old city of Jerusalem, and you can see the Temple Mount. And I say to them, do you realize if I had told her our great-great-grandparents that their great-great-grandchildren would be growing up in the rebuilt Jerusalem, they wouldn't believe it. They wouldn't believe it. And of it. course, their response is, okay, Abba, we get it. Can you yeah. just please turn the radio yeah. on? Exactly, exactly. Um, so I think a lot about life here gives me hope. And at the same time, I'm talking to myself here about the need to really cultivate that. Um, there's a whole area of marital therapy and psychology that talks about love as a quality that you cultivate. It's not something that you just feel or don't feel. So hope, I think, is another big element like that, that isn't just do you feel it or don't you feel it. It's how do I cultivate a deeper sense of hope. And so here we are in the midst of a war, and it's a very challenging time. And as you said, we cannot afford a sense of kotzer ruach. We need to cultivate hope. We need to await salvation every day. We need to turn to each other and say, you know, I need to be lifted up right now. And these actions on our part, these words on our part, may serve to restore all those pieces that the children of Israel were missing when they were kotzer ruach. It might restore our sense of faith, our sense of trust. It might help us to overcome fear and feel more courageous. And it might give us vision. It might widen our imagination and help us to be able to think about a different reality. You know, I have a few associations with the very powerful both your words and I think also your example, because I'm looking at you and I see that smile and I see a certain light in you that I am really also need. So number one is I got to hang around with you more. I need to see the world through your eyes more often. And I think that's a really important lesson, not just with you, but with others who can hold on to that and I can absorb some of that from them. But it also makes me realize how many generations of Jews since the destruction of the temple throughout the Middle Ages, living as these oppressed minority communities. I'm not going into they were always tortured and abused, but how they were able to maintain that this idea that you've raised, that the survival of the Jewish people depends on 
It depended on it back in Egypt, and it depends now our ability to overcome Kotzer Ruach and to believe in a positive, hopeful future for the Jewish people. That's how we held on, right? From Rashi to Nachmanides to Rambam to the Tosfot, all the way through the Shulchan Ruch, you name it. Uh, all the Kabbalists, all the Jewish philosophers, all those Jews who lit Shabbat candles and made Kiddush and sent their kids to schools to learn Hebrew and to learn the texts of their people— in the face of looking around, you know, what do they see? A massive Christian and Muslim community around them, and they were this uh, oppressed minority community, and they held on because they believed that somewhere down the line, something positive was going to emerge, and I think that I have to somehow buy into their strength a little bit. And the last thing, you know, people always ask, what's the opposite of faith? And I used to think the opposite of faith was cynicism. And I think Rabbi Nachman would say the opposite of faith is fear. Mm. Right when he talks about that the whole world is a narrow bridge, the main thing is not to fear. I think what he means is the main thing is to have emuna that you're going to cross that narrow bridge. That if you focus on all the terrible things that could happen or are happening, and the use of the word bridge is so important, you won't see the other side that's actually possible in front of you. You will only be looking to either side and you will see the chasm, you will see the falling, you will see all the ways things that can go wrong. But that fear is crippling. And I think the last couple months have been dominated by fear. Fear for the safety of Chayalim, fear for the future of this country, fear for the future of the Jewish people. Fear has been so dominant, and I really feel that that is the threat to Emunah, that Emunah is rooted in not looking at the conditions that you're in obsessively and all the dangers that are present, but being able to also keep an eye forward on where you hope you are heading. Well, you're also suggesting by this, I think, that hope is really synonymous with faith. Absolutely. Hope is an expression of emuna. That's what you've taught us today, Leon. So I want to thank you personally. This has been very healing. I feel like I had a moment of spiritual therapy with you today, and I'm also hopeful that at the time that all of you are listening to this, you won't need as much spiritual therapy as we do right now, that by the time this is aired, hostages will be returned, the situation will be so much better. But uh, Leon, you have challenged us not to wait around for hopefulness or positivity, but to embrace the challenge of overcoming Kotzer Ruach and developing hopefulness and emunah. So I think we all have to thank you for giving us that message. Thank you so much, Tzvi. So on behalf of Leon and myself, we want to wish you a Shabbat Shalom and a lot of emunah and a lot of hopefulness and a lot of inner strength and uh, to keep looking at the endpoint and not always look to the sides of that bridge and all the dangers that are around us as much as we can and to find those people in our lives who can help us do it. Thank you, Tzvi. Thank you, Leon, very much. Shabbat Shalom, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to the Pardes Parsha podcast recorded here at Nomi Studios in Jerusalem. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode and gained some new insights and perspectives on the Torah portion. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform and leave us a five-star review if you enjoyed the episode. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important conversations. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to exploring the Torah with you again next week on the Pardes Parsha podcast. Shabbat Shalom.